you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real hello one and all this is chance solenvifer one of the hosts of be real on the playlist podcast network I'm flying solo today without my dear Noah to bring you a director interview. I'm going to be talking to the filmmaker who brings us The Wind, which is a new horror film from IFC. Emma Tammy is that filmmaker. For a little bit of background, and just so the interview that you're about to hear makes total sense, she's never done anything like this before. Her previous effort was in a co-directorial capacity on a documentary called Fair Chase about long-distance runners. But this is totally new for her. The Wind is kind of a shoestring, period, Western horror mashup. And you can kind of see the seams of it, um, which in some ways I think makes it even more enjoyable. There's, there's truly so few elements in the movie. You know, let's say four and a half people, two cabins, and a horizon wide enough to, to swallow them all. Um, but seeing how sort of little there is to work with scares-wise... Uh, makes some of the more elaborate horror um, satisfying. So the plot is that Lizzie, played by Caitlin Gerard, is a is a homesteader who lives with her husband Isaac in I don't think we get a state, but it could be, you know, eighteen fifties Nebraska, Kansas, Wyoming, anywhere where the grass is tall and uh, the people are absent. It's told out of order. You know that something has uh, maybe gone south in Lizzie and Isaac's marriage. Uh, but the inciting incident is the fact that they're joined by by new neighbors, um, Emma and Gideon, who bring with them sort of some odd vibes, uh, some dissatisfaction, especially on behalf of uh, Emma, that eventually kind of spreads to Lizzie um, just about this, about this kind of living. They're starved for agency, but also just uh, anything resembling a creative, different life. Um, and as I talked to Emma about, there's there's an interesting interplay going on in this movie. One of the best things about it is there there is sort of a very traditional, you know, shushing and shutdown uh, mentality from husband to wife as some of the horror pops up and people are not believed. But I think the movie delves also deeper into sort of the effects of gaslighting and stoicism in terms of making all truth uh, elusive when the imagination is going wild. Um, I'm trying to think what else I have to say. Oh, in the review on theplaylist.net, our Victor Stiff said, he compared it to The Witch and Babadook, which I think in in terms of tone and in terms of, um, you know, women dealing with trauma and horror that represents their trauma, I think think that, that makes sense. This is also sort of quintessentially, you know, a Plains film. I would say that Lizzie and Caitlin Gerard performs this pretty well. Uh, it just becomes a bit like a you know a chunk of granite or something that's compacting tighter and tighter and tighter as there's nothing to do out there but be terrified. So I think that's the setup. I thank you all kindly for listening. Please check out the other shows on the Playlist Podcast Network. Like and subscribe. As always, uh, this being a, a miniature interview installment of be real were brought to you by the california college of the arts writing mfa you'll hear from them in a bit but for now here is my chat with emma tammy are you out here alone 
longer a God-fearing woman. I don't suspect God has much business out here. So how does like a documentarian get interested in making a 19th century horror film? Oh, um, well, I, I will say uh, I've always been a fan of 19th century horror films. No, no, no. But I, okay. I, I was really excited about this one because um, I have been a fan of Western films my whole life. And um, the idea of getting to make one was the dream. Um, I had a couple years ago shot a documentary out in New Mexico and really fell in love with that landscape. And I think the vastness and wide openness of the West has always captured my imagination. But then visually as a filmmaker, it's a real, um, it's like being a kid in the candy store, you know? And uh, the fact that we were going to be able to go back to New Mexico to shoot this one was was so cool and exciting. Because I'd read you talk about that and, and talk about kind of falling in love with it. Was there ever, does a switch flip between beauty and grandeur and, creepy isolation yeah. did you ever experience that yes absolutely and i think that that was really what we were trying to get get at with the cinematography um because at some point that that vastness and that wide openness and that endless you know sky and and land turns claustrophobic right and um more to the point our, our character our lead character lizzie is experiencing that suffocation of you know, within her own self and her own emotional state. So I think we really wanted the landscape to reflect that and interact with that and motivate, motivate some of her feelings um, as well as reflect some of them. Mm -hmm. Were there any movies that you watched or were thinking about to kind of like get in the headspace to do that? Or is that not really how you work creatively? Yeah, no, no, no. There were a ton of um, visual references. And for this one, there was also like, Lynn Moncrief, our cinematographer, and I were also pulling like paintings and we were pulling, mm. you know, still still photographs as much as we were, you know, pulling shots from Bergman films and, you know, referencing classic Westerns like The Searchers. So we were pretty reference heavy on this. And then um, at the end of the day, I think we were able to, you know, take all those references in and then let go of them a little bit as well. Once we were actually shooting and modify our shot list every day to really find unique and interesting and un unsettling um, ways of capturing this story based on where we were and, uh, and the performances. So let me ask you about Caitlin garage since we're talking about the performances. Um, I, I was struck, uh, just looking at some clips of her acting and seeing photographs of her. She's a very elegant, beautiful movie star as like a movie star. Look, she looks a little bit like Blake lively. Um, but in this movie, there's like an essential hard bitten malnourished kind of quality to, you know, everything she does from the drama to the, the more horror action uh, elements. I'm curious how, what convinced you, with her that uh, that she could pull that off. Yeah. I mean, I think her range as a performer is, is huge. And I felt that straight out the gate um, on her first audition and um, really almost immediately. She just, mm -hmm. I think she did three scenes in that audition and each one I felt like I saw something different mm. um, in her physicality, in her vocal cadence, in her, in her facial expressions. And I think that, you know, as you say, like she's a very beautiful woman and yet right. 
doing this film about really hard living. And I think that there was a weatheredness and a hardiness that she also was able to completely embody and, and conjure. And, and to me, like that was the heart and the essence of this character. Um, and she has so much grit mm -hmm. and, um, you know, Caitlin was really excited to get dirty and really excited to, um, embody that. So it was, I feel like she transforms in this character several times, you know, in front of our eyes. And, um, one of our producers was watching one of the early cuts and in one of the scenes he was like, I didn't even recognize her. Mm. And I think that's just a real testament to, uh, her, her skill as an actor. I wanted to talk about one scene in particular, because I mean, a lot of this movie is about her sort of, you know, questioning, what she's seeing and us questioning like what, what everyone is seeing. But there's the scene where uh, Emma is under the bed. She's very frightened and, and Lizzie's trying to like put her under with some chloroform or something to relax her. Right. And she gets slapped. Lizzie gets slapped. And then the way she sort of like comes back, not out of anger so much, but like a, this is the plan. I'm a pioneer woman. We do not deviate from the plan. Like really felt true to, I'm from Nebraska. So I, I felt like I recognized that kind of, um, you know, that homesteady, like we don't have, we don't have room for alternatives in the plan. Um, were there any other dimensions about the character that you or she were thinking about? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's a really good read into it. And I think that that was exactly, uh, you know, what was at play? I mean, the stakes were too big. There wasn't time to entertain any of that. And in in a weird way, she's doing a little bit of, of what Isaac did to her, which was like trying to put a lid on the things that were disrupting anything out of the normal routine. And the yeah. normal routine is so is critical for survival. There's almost mm -hmm. for anything else outside of that. And the day-to-day -day living was so hard. So, you know, we definitely talked about that. I think additionally in relation to, like, her character and Emma, there was this whole mother-daughter, sister, slash, you know, potential mistress, you know, relationship happening right. that was so complicated. And, you know, I think she's really trying to help Emma. And at the same time, she's very frustrated with Emma and Emma um, poses a threat to her and her her own stability and her own marriage. So it was great to flesh out all of the intricacies and layers of their relationship and, and the complications that each one of them were going through just trying to make their way. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, and then it's back to the conversation with Emma Tammy. This podcast is brought to you by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means that you can write and paint, write and design, and write and make a film. You can also write and write. Look for their MFA faculty member Tom Barbash's novel, The Dakota Winters, out from Echo. And their alum, Adam Nemet, and podcast favorites, We Can Save Us All, out now from Unnamed Press. For more information, open an internet browser and type in www.cca.edu slash writing MFA. Can you tell me a little bit about the 
Demons of the Plains pamphlet. Because, like, among several other kind of texts, it's really striking. You know, you're in this giant, wide-open space, and then you get inside this cabin, and then you focus on something even smaller, and it's just, like, these couple pages that are really creepy. And I, I, It reminded me of, like, sort of, like, dime store pamphlets. How, how, how did that come together? Well, Teresa Sutherland, the writer, was inspired uh, by these pamphlets that would actually, you know, get distributed at like different trading posts and stuff as these settlers would be going, you know, on their journey on their way to their property, they would oftentimes pass through, you know, a little trading post and sometimes there'd be a church there and there'd be supplies that you can buy and people to interact with before you maybe never interact with anyone else for months and months. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, so she was inspired by that as a, as a, idea but then she completely fictionalized that demon pamphlet and you know included names of actual demons Mm -hmm. um and and that actual demons yeah 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 like biblically referenced demons Mm -hmm. Um, all of which really tap into our own I, i think you know inner demons as as human beings so jealousy and fear and you know all these things that I love that it was multiple demons of the prairie because at any point during the story, one of those human emotions is eating away at one of our characters. And, um, you know, the idea was that this, this little seed of an idea, um, which was in this case, an extension of religion, um, Mm -hmm. but could have been an extension of folklore or really, you know, anything that was kind of a verbal story at, or at the time, like, that that was enough to really just grow and grow and grow inside of these women's minds because there was so such a degree of isolation and lon- loneliness. Yeah. I want to let me pick up on this point right now then cuz you've talked a lot and it's I mean it's totally one of the major themes of the movie about the uh the the trauma and the just the horror of like not being believed by men and specifically men like very close to these characters. Um but then there is this other side of the story, like they're meeting, reading Mysteries of Adolfo at one point, um, like gothic literature that, uh, you know, Jane Austen hung a whole book around people becoming obsessed with Mysteries of Adolfo. Um, the fiction and like ima- being imagination starved is like another kind of key element to like what these women need, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, especially Emma, you know, I think she gets she gets to the planes from from city living and right. is completely, you know, unable to adjust. But I also think is so starved and so lonely for interaction and people. And I think that that's why she goes quite quickly because she's not able to, you know, to handle it. And she's so vulnerable to that. But I do mm-hmm. think um, that's a huge part of it. And, you know, she keep, Emma has a ton of books and they ultimately end up in Lizzie's hands. But, you know, these are things that she brought with her because, you know, she's story hungry and she's life hungry and experience hungry and she's really young. Um, so, you know, living vicariously through that, um, I think is, is huge. There is some inspiration from like real accounts of pioneer women specifically like fixating on the wind, right? Yeah. Why the common, the subconscious like commonality there in real life accounts? Yeah. I mean, I think, you you know, you go out on um, the 
plains, whether it's New Mexico or Kansas or like anywhere in the territory of what, what was considered um, the American West at that time. And it is, it is insane how loud the wind can be and how incessant it can be. And you understand why, why there was this, you know, at least the folklore of women losing their minds over the incessantness of the wind, because if you're constantly alone and hearing the howling, um, it, it does play tricks on your mind and it does, you know, I think really exaggerate the, the isolation, but I think it's an amazing metaphor because, you know, the wind really embodies everything. It's, it's scary and it's soothing and it's, you know, it carries other sounds and it's just this very, it's, it's something that you can't see, but you feel and you hear. And I think, you know, I think we can all really relate to that. Mm-hmm. Emma, tell me a little bit about uh, how you were thinking about editing in this movie. Because not only is it told uh, out of order, and I imagine there's a lot of orchestration that happened there, but also just being a horror movie, tension in its pretty short runtime is is built and released through cuts to other things. Um, what was your headspace going into the editing process? Well, as you say, like it was... You know, it was written out of order and the structure is nonlinear. So I think that that was always something that we were like excited to lean into because it really felt like it reflected and emphasized the fractured headspace of Lizzie. Yeah. Um, I think going into the edit, the, the main thing that we were trying to keep in mind is that the whole movie really needed to feel rooted in her POV in order mm-hmm. to, for it to work and for you to feel on, on that journey. Um, so a lot of the, the cuts were motivated by that, you know, what are the moments where she's, you know, being drawn to think about a different, a different timeline or a different experience and how does the overall memory scape work to create a coherent story that, you know, follows an emotional arc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what about on the more sort of like technical, like, is this creepy enough? Like, does this edit get us out of a scare? Does this get us into like a building of scares? Uh, yeah, totally. Well, that was a bunch of trial and error. And, you know, we, the original assembly that we made that was based on how, you know, the order of the script wasn't what we ended up with at all. So we were, you know, at times, actually oftentimes it was chipping away at things. Um, mm-hmm. We were lucky enough to have, you know, enough material to, to be able to do that and, and really be able to, shape it um with with a lot of options going into it with a lot of options um and that was fantastic i think in terms of the scares specifically you know it is it's such a specific timing mm-hmm. with horror and it's as specific as comedy it's like you know a, a, a frame or two can can lose the laugh or can lose the scare so it really is like some trial and error. You know, you start with the script, you look at the performance, you see what we've actually got in terms of the coverage and lean into the strongest elements. And then it's and then it's just a matter of tweaking the timing to make, and obviously the sound design is a huge other component of it. Right. Um, I often find myself jumping in my seat in horror films because of the sound, not because of the images at all. Right. Um, and it's not because the images aren't scary. I could watch it on mute and, and be, you know, my jaw would drop maybe, but I, I wouldn't physically jump out of my seat because it right. is sound that, you know, that gets you on that level. So, uh, 
that was a huge part of it, obviously, for this one. Yeah. There's like something physiological about like a sudden violin screech that doesn't, you know, if it happened behind you now, the same thing would, would yeah. happen. Um, this might seem like a goofy thing to focus on, Emma, but I really was curious. I don't know if if someone would have asked you like four years ago, would you be uh, filming like wolves and goats for their creepiness factor? Yeah. Like what you would have thought yeah. <laughs> to that. Um, but what... Uh, what was it like, like wrangling animals for horrors? I mean, I imagine the you guys were on a were on a tight budget, and those are kind of like your special effects in a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, working with animals is always hilarious because they never uh-huh. see what you want them to do, and you just need to keep rolling and and catch those serendipitous like couple of seconds where they, they you nail it. Sure. But, um, but it's also so fun working with animals. I mean, they ruin shots all the time, and but they're they're so fun to have on set. And then, you know, I, I think what was so cool about this one is that we were taking things that were actually quite gentle and mundane. Not that yeah. we were gentle, but, you know, certainly with the goat, you know, we're, we're working with elements throughout this film that you wouldn't normally, you know think are scary or that you know are are pushed to that place in a horror film and we were able to make them scary and you know even just like an eerie line of of laundry like blowing in the wind we were able to you know evoke some um some unease in in things like that and and that was really fun and and a cool challenge um but yeah i mean animals animals right I, I did have I mean this in the best way but like talking about animals and editing together it was like if we hang on this goat for two more seconds I am going to start laughing like the cut has to come because this yeah. is just a goat in a field absolutely absolutely and we also we were like pushing a lot of scares um during the day which was also like you know some of the haunting stuff really revs up at night yeah. but it was like how you know how do these scares come alive in in the you know the broadest of daylight where she's seen absolutely everything and still freaking her out you know mm-hmm. so we were we were trying to do some things that felt a little a little different so last question for you Emma I think we just got about a minute left um I was just curious what your perspective was uh just having made one and now promoting one uh, why do you think why or how do you think horror movies today seem to be really good at portraying like trauma and oppression because it feels like your movie fits into that conversation um that a lot of other like what people in this golden age of horror would say we're just getting different perspectives um and the horror is kind of coming from inside and outside in interesting ways i was curious what your viewpoint was yeah i mean to make a huge generalization i think a lot of us are feeling that internal trauma right now in in our um, political landscape and uh you know and just working through a lot of those things through the through the magic of movie making which is so fun and and it's so fun to be able to push you know some of the the themes that we're all coping with into a sci-fi space or a horror space or supernatural space um and you know, digest it all while eating popcorn and consuming it at the same time for pleasure. You know, mm-hmm. it's really a, I think that's a potent combo. And that's something that genre films have and, and TV shows have been able to tap into, you know, over the decades, which is which is so amazing. All right. 
Well, congrats on the movie and uh, pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Really nice talking to you. Does it ever stop? Does whatever stop? The wind? I hear it whispering. 